By 1908, the Ottoman Empire was at the weakest point it had ever been in its 500-year history. If the early 16th century was its zenith, the early 20th century was its nadir. For the past hundreds of years, the empire had steadily lost territory to the Greeks and Europeans. Now, backed into a corner, it appeared as if Sultan Abdul Hamid II, its leader, was ready to preemptively cede portions of Macedonia. For a group of nationalist political dissidents known as the Young Turks, this was the final insult. The Young Turks were determined to restore the empire to its former glory. Their first step, overthrow Abdul Hamid. Throughout the summer of 1908, the Young Turks struck fear into the heart of the political establishment carrying out a series of assassinations on high-ranking generals and government officials. Then, on July 21st, they sent a series of telegrams directly to the Sultan. They demanded that Abdul Hamid reinstate the 1876 Constitution, which gave vastly more power and autonomy to the Ottoman populace. Two days later, Abdul Hamid shockingly yielded. He not only agreed to the demands of the Young Turks, but also provided a mansion for the group's high-ranking members, including its de facto leader, a mustachioed 34-year-old named Talat. Within months, the Young Turks would sweep into the Ottoman government, riding a wave of virulent nationalism and revolutionary fervor. However, it soon would become clear that they lacked any concrete mandate beyond their pledge to make the Ottoman Empire great again. Only a few short years later, this toxic brand of chauvinism would lead to one of the worst atrocities in human history, the Armenian Genocide. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're following the despot monarchs who reigned just before or during World War I. We've talked about King Leopold II of Belgium, Emperor Franz Josef of Austria-Hungary, and now we're looking at the three Pashas of the Ottoman Empire. This week, we begin our look at Mehmet Talat Pasha, who sought to return the declining Ottoman Empire to its former glory. We'll explore Talat's political indoctrination as a disgruntled young man and how he and the young Turks overthrew the Sultan. Next week, we'll explore how Talat used World War I to secure his grip on power and how he used the raging violence as a pretext to murder approximately 1.5 million innocent Armenian citizens. Coming up, we head to the Ottoman Empire. To truly understand the Ottoman Empire of the early 20th century and the milieu of Talat Pasha's rise to power, it's essential to understand the history of the empire and what it used to represent. When Rome fell in the 5th century, the eastern portion of the empire survived and became known as the Byzantine Empire, encompassing land in Greece, Asia Minor, North Africa, and the Middle East. The Byzantines saw themselves as the heirs of mighty Rome. And in the Middle Ages, 
they were the most powerful nation in the world. That is, until the rise of Islam in the 7th century and the birth of the caliphate. For the next 500 years, various Arab caliphates and groups throughout North Africa and the Middle East began seizing lands from the Byzantines. By the late 13th century, the Byzantines also lost control of Asia Minor. Soon the region became dominated by a patchwork of towns and cities, most of whom were adherents of Sunni Islam. It wasn't until the reign of Osman I around the late 1280s that the territories in Asia Minor began to coalesce into one empire with one true religion under one leader, the Sultan. The Sultan existed as the principal religious and political authority. And it was under Sultan Osman's direction that the Ottomans began conquering significant portions of the decaying Byzantine Empire. While Osman I was essentially the founding father of the Ottoman Empire, the empire expanded its holdings even more rapidly under his successors. Murad I, for example, conquered huge portions of Eastern Europe and the Balkans. These conquests continued in earnest until what was arguably the crowning achievement of the Ottomans, the fall of Constantinople, orchestrated by Sultan Mehmed II. Constantinople had been the capital of the eastern section of the Roman Empire since 330 CE. But after a series of corrupt and incompetent emperors, as well as the devastation of the Black Death, Constantinople was on its last legs. For 53 days, Mehmed II and the Ottomans lay siege to the once great city. Finally, on May 29, 1453, the city fell. It became the capital of the Ottoman domain and eventually would be renamed Istanbul. With that, the Byzantine Empire was gone, and the Ottomans were indisputably the most fearsome, powerful, and respected dynasty in existence. The next hundred years were perhaps the most distinguished in the history of the empire, especially under the rule of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, from 1520 to 1566. By the end of Suleiman's reign, the Ottomans controlled large swaths of land, which spanned three continents. Suleiman also turned the Ottomans into an economic powerhouse. Not only did the empire forge alliances with a number of European kingdoms, it also controlled a myriad of trade routes, including the Silk Road, which connected Asia with Europe. It was a true golden age. But every ascendant civilization must experience a decline. After Suleiman's passing, the momentum of the empire reversed. By the early 17th century, the once booming Ottoman economy was stagnating. Much of this was due to the fact that European traders discovered new routes and could now circumvent the Ottomans and avoid their taxes and fees. At the same time, wildly expensive naval wars against the Spanish and Venetians decimated the Ottoman treasury. And although there were some victories, the cost was much greater in terms of money and blood. There was, however, a brief moment when it looked as if the decline might be turned around, from 1623 to 1656. During this period, a unique phenomenon occurred in the empire, the Sultanate of Women. 
For three decades, several of the Sultan's wives essentially led the country. This occurred primarily because there were two successive adult sultans who died after only a short time in power and were succeeded by their sons, who were too young to rule on their own. Their mothers then helped rule on their behalf, and once the trend started, some of these women also became de facto leaders at home when the grown sultans were engaged in battle. The most notable accomplishments from this period, besides an enormous empire being run by women, was the investment in infrastructure and public work projects throughout the realm. The empire's defenses were also strengthened with fortress fortifications. But the Sultanate of Women and its productive reign came to an end in the late 17th century. After one ill-fated endeavor, the empire's decline started accelerating rapidly once again. In the summer of 1683, Ottoman troops attempted to seize Vienna from the Habsburgs, and it didn't go particularly well. In fact, the siege led to a series of protracted battles that came to be known as the Great Turkish War. But for the Ottomans, there was nothing great about it. The Great Turkish War resulted in the loss of massive amounts of territory for the Ottomans. And that was just the beginning. Over the next 200 years, the Ottomans gave up massive portions of Eastern Europe, North Africa, and the Balkans. Many within the empire attributed these military losses to the kingdom's overall inability to modernize, unlike the rest of Europe. Meanwhile, religious minorities within the Ottoman Empire, specifically Christians and Jews, were prospering. Perhaps owing to a more secular form of education, the minority populations were at the forefront of commerce within the empire. For instance, ethnic Armenians and Greeks owned a lot of businesses. This eventually led to resentment from their Muslim neighbors and customers, which brewed constantly beneath the surface of Ottoman life. The Ottoman government tried to find a path forward through the mess around them, and in 1839 concluded that their best bet was some modernizing, secularizing reforms. Collectively called the Tanzimat, these included large-scale rehabilitations of the banking industry and the abandonment of Sharia, or religious law, in favor of a secular one. Unfortunately, they weren't enough to save the empire from its precipitous decline. The Crimean War of 1853, which the Ottomans technically won, was so costly that it essentially bankrupted the entire empire. In 1875, the Ottoman government actually declared bankruptcy. It agreed to have its finances scrutinized and controlled by a group of European bureaucrats known condescendingly as the Ottoman Public Debt Administration. The Ottoman Empire had once been the most powerful and feared on Earth. Now, it was barely hanging by a thread. The Public Debt Administration was an insult to the Empire's proud Ottoman people, who were increasingly looking at both their government and their imperial neighbors with anger and shame. In 1874, in the throes of this period of anger and depression, a boy named Talat was born. Soon, he and a group of radical nationalists known as the Young Turks would attempt to restore the Ottoman Empire to its former glory, and in doing so, would transform the empire forever, for better 
or for worse. Coming up, Talat is indoctrinated by an upstart political faction. Every so often, something so impactful happens, it has the power to capture the attention of a whole country. An event so deadly or dumbfounding, it has no choice but to live on in infamy. Hi, Parcasters. It's Ashley Flowers, and I'm exposing the most sinister cases from the darkest corners of the globe in my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, come along as I guide you on a wicked world tour. 15 different countries, 15 infamous crimes. Take a trip to Iceland, where six people confessed to a murder that never actually happened. Journey to Mexico, where a Lucha Libre wrestler moonlights as a serial killer. And travel to New Zealand, where two friends hatch a deadly plan to become famous. Each episode of International Infamy explores the twists and turns of a notoriously high-profile case, zeroing in on the cultural details which make the crime unique to its location, and explaining why it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Follow my new Spotify original from ParCast, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers, and catch a new episode every week. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. At the back of the 19th century, the once thriving Ottoman Empire was near its end as financially, the government had become indebted to Europeans. Out of this steady decline rose a man who would one day take control of the empire and promise to make it great once more. At the time of his birth in 1874, Ottoman Muslims, at least those living in what is now the area around Turkey, did not have surnames. Such was the case for the boy named Talat. As an adult, Talat's round, mustachioed face would become quite memorable. But as a young boy, he was known primarily for his outspoken confidence, which often bordered on cockiness. Though he was born into a fairly comfortable middle-class family in Edirne, life was never particularly easy for Talat. When he was three years old, encroaching Russian troops forced the family to flee their home. The family was able to return the following year and resume their normal life. But normalcy didn't last long this time either. When Talat was 11, his father suddenly died. Losing his father at such a young age had a profound impact on Talat, who by most accounts became increasingly aggressive and violent. In fact, at age 16, he was expelled from school for assaulting a teacher. Throughout his teenage years, Talat walked around with a chip on his shoulder. And before long, he found a new outlet for his anger, politics. As the empire descended into chaos, Talat threw himself into the political fray. Like many young people, his enemy became the Sultan himself, Abdul Hamid II. Almost from the get-go, Sultan Abdul Hamid was wildly unpopular with the people. He didn't help his case when in 1878, he suspended the Ottoman Constitution of 1876. Written by both progressive and conservative members of the political establishment, the Constitution was an evolution of the earlier Tanzimat reforms. 
It outlined a series of policies aimed at distributing power from the Sultan to a more Western-style government. Most notably, it called for the formation of a parliament. The Constitution was copied, translated, and distributed to as many Ottoman citizens as possible. Naturally, it became wildly popular with those who could read and understand it. The Sultan agreed to its implementation, mostly fearing that he would be deposed if he didn't. It seemed as if the Ottoman Empire was destined for progress and modernity. Except, then there was a setback. After a military defeat in the Russo-Turkish War in 1878, Abdul Hamid suspended the constitution and retook control of the government. This gave rise to violent unrest. After so much strife and defeat, Ottomans were angry. And who better to blame than this power-hungry, ineffective leader? This undercurrent of anger and resentment would soon coalesce into a broad national movement that was determined to restore the empire to its former glory and remove the sultan. For Talat, a fatherless, angsty teenager, revolution was all that made sense. In the 1890s, Talat came under the spell of his brother-in-law, a journalist who formed a group of like-minded rebels. They called themselves the Committee of Union and Progress, or CUP. The rebel group was composed mainly of low-ranking military officers and career civil servants. The CUP harbored a strong aversion to the Sultan and his inefficient central government. But that's about all they had. Besides being anti-Sultan, there was no official party line or ideology. Even as more people joined, the group had no real goals beyond dumping Abdul Hamid. Summing up the CUP's early vision for the Ottoman Empire, founding member Dr. Mehmed Rashid exclaimed, We have declared war on those who harass the fatherland from within, and we are sure that we will win. We call to account those who ruin our country, exploit our villages, and cause our enemies to insult our religion and our nation. The words were passionate, if hollow, and they were enough to draw Talat in, to make him want to be a part of this mission, an important part. With each passing year, Talat became increasingly influential within the organization. This was due in large part to his charisma, charm, and efficacy as a speaker of multiple languages, including Greek and French. Basically, Talat was gregarious and likable and used those qualities to get what he wanted. Which, at the time, meant distributing anti-government literature with his compatriots. They didn't have much reach, nor much actual influence. But the tracts were full of the passionate rhetoric that brought Talat into the CUP in the first place and it was virulent enough to grab the sultan's attention. So much so that in 1896, the police broke up the group and arrested several members, including Talad. Prison lasted two years. Two years of stewing and becoming even more anti-sultan. Then, in 1898, Talat was released but forced into exile, an indignity which further radicalized him. He was sent to Salonika, now the Greek city of Thessaloniki, 
where he picked up a job at the post office, started attending law school, and in his spare time carried on his fight by founding a new clandestine organization. Around 1903, Talat befriended a small group of like-minded individuals. Among them was Ahmed Chiamal, who, along with Talat, would play a devastating role in the future of the empire. At first, the group was content to meet in cafes and wax poetic about rebellion amongst themselves. But soon, they reached out to a British diplomat stationed in Salonika named Robert Graves, with the hopes of gaining an audience. Graves obliged the unexpected request and was shocked when the group sought his advice on how to overthrow the Sultan. Graves thought their chances were poor and told them as much. After all, they had no support or connections among the police or armed forces. Furthermore, an uprising among predominantly Bulgarian Christians seeking increased autonomy and civil rights had just been suppressed in nearby Macedonia. It was very unlikely that a ragtag group of dissidents would fare much better. Ironically, however, Talat left the meeting feeling even more inspired. But they couldn't help but admire the gumption of the Bulgarians Graves had told them about. And they were determined to succeed where the Christians had failed. In order to do so, they would need, among other things, to become a tighter, more organized unit. After all, at this point, they were simply talking, not planning. So, on September 7, 1906, they became the Crescent Committee, a group like the CUP, but one that was at first open to Muslims. And it was Talat who distinguished himself as a natural-born leader. One member described Talat as more courageous and more reckless than we all. He did not fear the world around him. Boasting a fearless leader and several devoted members, the Crescent Committee was en route to becoming a serious political organization, especially with its intense initiation ritual. Before admittance, a new pledge was made to don a red cloak and a blindfold and listen while the Master of Ceremonies preached the ideology and values of the group. Then the pledge was forced to swear a loyalty oath to the group with one hand holding a pistol and the other resting on a copy of the Quran. It was during this time that the society and its overtly populist message thrived, and it soon caught the attention of exiled CUP members who were now living in Paris, a hub for international revolutionary activity. The two groups decided strength in numbers was better than individual groups, so in 1907, the two groups merged under the CUP banner. Even though they hadn't actually done anything besides state a populist ideology and pander to the grievances of Ottoman citizens, particularly Muslim Ottoman citizens, the nascent nationals grew in number and confidence. However, they weren't the only people disgruntled by the Sultan. In the eastern provinces of the empire around Macedonia, ethnic Armenians were pretty unhappy with their own state of affairs. The Armenians had formed their own organization that was almost analogous to the CUP, called the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, or ARF, except, of course, that they were Christian. Even though the CUP was predominantly Muslim, Talat believed that an alliance between the two would be valuable. 
and before long, the two groups did form an uneasy alliance, with the ARF hoping that if the CUP came to power, it would grant Armenia autonomy. As the alliance blossomed, Talat truly distinguished himself as a leader. Using his charisma and populist rhetoric, he was able to connect with a myriad of military members and low-ranking government officials across present-day Macedonia and Albania, all of whom were amenable to his ideology. Membership spread like wildfire, and CUP branches opened throughout the region. By late 1907, the group had even begun to receive international attention, especially from Europe. As we mentioned earlier, the Ottoman financial sector was controlled by a group of European bankers and bureaucrats, a group that was growing increasingly worried about the escalating tension within the kingdom. So much so that they floated the idea of simply giving the Macedonian region autonomy. The idea was faddish at best. But the notion was particularly odious to the high-ranking members of the CUP organization. They didn't want Europeans deciding what went on in the empire, especially if that decision resulted in the loss of more territory. A high-ranking CUP member in Turkey summed up the sentiment in a letter to Talat, writing, Since the Macedonian question is the question of the existence of the Turks, we presume that for a sincere government, it should be preferable to take the chance of a great war instead of losing Macedonia. Though this had only been a suggestion from European powers, one that hadn't been approved, let alone adopted by the Sultan, the simple idea aroused fury and indignation. Talat and the rest of the CUP knew it needed to put a stop to such an idea before it got out of hand. So the CUP brass fired off a memorandum to the European bureaucrats explaining their opposition to its meddling in Ottoman affairs. They also, for one of the first times, started dispersing something of an actual mandate. This included the demand for a constitutional government and the end of the Sultan's autocratic rule. If these demands were ignored, they were prepared to go to war with the Ottoman government. The mandate, shockingly, did not lead to a new government but it did get the CUP categorized as a real threat. The Sultan's people began monitoring CUP members even more closely. But this only strengthened the group's resolve. As a result of this crackdown, Talat decided to go on the offensive. He hatched a plan to assassinate a high-level Ottoman military commander in Salonika, which was carried out by a loyal foot soldier on June 11, 1908. Emboldened by the success of this mission, the CUP decided it was now or never. There was no turning back. They began training guerrilla fighters across the empire in preparation for an eventual conflict with the Sultan's troops. Less than a month after their first assassination, the group killed a military general sent to Macedonia to nip any nascent revolt in the bud. For the Sultan and his government, the murder of the general represented a clear and present threat. Not only that, after the general's murder, many disgruntled Ottoman soldiers began defecting to the CUP. With momentum on their side, Talat and the CUP leaders decided to go all in. 
they sent telegrams to the highest-ranking officials demanding that the Sultan reinstate the Constitution of 1876, thereby relinquishing his complete control of the government and forming a democratically elected body. If he failed to comply by July 23rd, CUP troops would march on the capital. The Sultan didn't really have much of a choice. His empire was crumbling, and no one, not even non-revolutionaries, liked or supported him. Putting up a fight was futile. So the next day, Sultan Abdul Hamid II acquiesced. For a dwindling empire that had been under the strict control of an autocrat, it appeared to Ottoman citizens that things might finally be looking up. For the first time in decades, people had reason to be hopeful. One citizen describing the event years later wrote, Greeks, Bulgarians, Turks, Jews, Armenians, and Albanians had literally fallen in each other's arms and with tears of joy had embraced and called each other brother. But the joy they all shared would be short-lived. Within the next few years, Talat and the CUP would assume increasing authority. They would adopt a hardline xenophobic nationalism that would herald even stricter oppression. And when problems mounted, CUP leaders, among other government officials and leaders, would scapegoat one marginalized group over and over again, the Armenians. Coming up, Talat and the CUP leaders plot their ascendancy within the new Ottoman government and use the onset of World War I to their direct advantage. Now, back to the story. The revolution of 1908 may have seemed like a piece of cake for the CUP rebels, but it was a long time coming. The Sultan's government was weak, ineffectual, and probably could have been toppled with a feather. But now that Talat and the CUP were a force to be reckoned with, they needed to figure out what to do with their new influence. They needed a defined ideology, and quick. Talat and the other leaders of the movement could never seem to formulate anything concrete. Instead, they simply amplified the rhetoric that had been echoing amongst them before the revolution of 1908 and then some. Specifically, that the Sultan was a corrupt wimp, that European powers had no business meddling in Ottoman affairs, and that the once mighty Ottoman Empire would soon become a mighty Muslim powerhouse again. While they weren't necessarily incorrect regarding the first two concepts, their so-called mission statement amounted to little more than bluster. But even in 1908, that bluster bore a ring of xenophobia. One of Talat's right-hand men wrote in a document, Neither the Armenian nor any other person could be the heir of the bravery left us by a glorious and honorable history of 600 years. This was a far cry from their previous prevailing attitude that the CUP and rebel Armenian groups should align themselves against the Sultan. Now that the CUP had a taste of power and less need for alliances, they reverted to their stronger pro-Muslim stance and cast aside the Armenians as well as every other non-Muslim group. Still, for all their power to reject Armenians, the CUP still had gaps in its influence. 
The group couldn't wield any political power without being either admitted or voted into the new government. Making that happen would require planning, bureaucratic red tape, and the participation of high-level officials across the empire for the new reorganization. During this transitional period, the Ottomans somehow managed to lose even more of the little territory they had left. First, Bulgaria declared its independence, then Austria annexed Bosnia-Herzegovina, and finally, Crete became part of Greece. It was another painful reminder of just how far the empire had fallen. More importantly, it gave plenty of ammunition to CUP representatives, who were now free to participate in a national election at the end of 1908. On December 17th, 266 CUP members won seats in the new government, with 34-year-old Talat assuming the role of parliamentary vice president. Meanwhile, though they were steadily amassing political power and influence, it was around this time that the CUP began receiving its first doses of criticism. Many intellectuals, academics, and journalists objected to the CUP's history of violence, calling it, quote, a godless regime. Naturally, this did not sit well with Talat or his followers. In fact, in April 1909, a journalist who had written about the CUP agenda was murdered. His funeral drew a crowd of over 40,000 angry mourners, which showed that there were plenty of citizens within the empire who did not support the CUP. But it wasn't just Ottoman intellectuals who objected to the CUP agenda. Devout Muslims did as well. On April 12th, a group of army rebels and Muslim students who wanted to reinstate the Sultan and the Sharia rioted in the streets of Istanbul. They killed several bystanders and attempted to murder Talat and the other CUP leaders. The riot sent a clear message. The empire was still in complete disarray. New policies had yet to be passed, and the new government was already seen as weak and ineffectual. The CUP even began to lose power in Parliament, as its members were dismissed and replaced by a new cabinet. Talat and the CUP brass were well aware that trouble was brewing, but they were determined to quash it. Didn't matter who was hurt in the process. The easiest solution seemed to be deflecting blame. So they turned to the tried-and-true technique of scapegoating an ethnic minority, in this case, the Armenians. Anti-Armenian leaders, which included CUP officials among others, claimed incorrectly that it was actually the Christian Armenians who were responsible for the chaos in the empire. They propagated lies that Armenians were the ones who were rising up in order to create an autonomous territory. And for good measure, they blamed the successful leaders of the Armenian business community for the cycle of poverty many Muslims were trapped in. It was a language that had been repeated for thousands of years, and for Ottoman Muslims, the familiar lies seemed to ring true. Within two weeks, Muslims throughout the empire had not only redirected their anger toward the Armenians, but angry mobs across the country actually murdered more than 20,000 Armenian citizens and destroyed a myriad of homes and businesses. 
Appallingly, that number would pale in comparison to later violence against ethnic Armenians. Soon, CUP leaders resumed their goals of amassing political power. Their first move was to organize a vote of no confidence in the Sultan and replace him with his more amenable brother, Mehmed Rashad. The former Sultan was also exiled in Salonika, where Talat had been previously forced to relocate. Next, Talat and a few CUP higher-ups traveled to London to meet with the Prime Minister, likely in the summer of 1909. The visit was mostly a British attempt to forge a relationship with the CUP, whom they assumed would soon control the Ottoman Empire. After London, Talat and his men had similar audiences in Germany and Austria. Talat returned from the trip brimming with confidence. He was now internationally accepted as the leader of the CUP movement. But back at home, Talat faced yet another uprising. This time, it was in Albania concerning the adoption of the Latin alphabet. Everyone in the Ottoman government wanted the Albanians to continue using the Arabic alphabet. Tensions boiled over, and the Ottoman government chose to subdue the Albanian uprising with force. After quelling the Albanians with members of the police and military and blaming the Armenians for the declining empire, it became clear to Talat that the true path to power was through demagoguery. From this point on, he and the others abandoned any pretense of compromise or diplomacy and simply took what they believed to be rightfully theirs. But Talat and the CUP still didn't entirely control the newly formed Ottoman parliament, and their aggression and belligerence could only get them so far. Between late 1909 and 1911, the party experienced something of an identity crisis. Younger members were becoming disillusioned with the reactionary direction of their leaders, while Talat and the old guard felt they weren't right-wing enough. Luckily for Talat, Another series of crises would distract the party from its own infighting and be used to the best of Talat's advantage. The first came at the very end of 1911, when Italy invaded Ottoman-controlled Libya. Most members of the government wanted to meet the invasion with diplomacy, which really meant capitulation and attempting to cede as little territory as possible. Meanwhile, Talat and the CUP brass railed that they had to meet fire with fire, even though they knew that they stood no chance against the superior Italian military. Like much of their agenda, this proposal was based on pandering to the faction of Ottomans fed up with their waning empire. The pandering worked. Though Talat's calls for war with Italy were ignored by the rest of the flailing government, they were almost universally approved by Ottoman Muslims. By late 1912, war fever gripped the Ottoman kingdom. And while the war with Italy never happened, they didn't have to wait long. In the Balkans, an alliance had developed between factions across Bulgaria, Serbia, Montenegro, and Greece, with the specific intention of liberating themselves from Ottoman rule. On October 8th, Montenegro officially declared war against the Ottomans. Their Balkan allies followed in swift succession. 
This time, the Ottoman government had no choice but to mobilize every available soldier and weapon in its arsenal. Unfortunately, its arsenal was a relic from a bygone era, and the troops it could muster were being commanded by a government and military in crisis. Needless to say, the war didn't go so great for the Ottomans. In fact, it was a humiliating disaster on all fronts. By May of 1913, the Balkan factions had mopped the floor with the Ottomans and asserted their independence. The Ottomans lost almost all of their remaining territory in Europe. If the empire had hit rock bottom before, by now, that bottom had fallen out. Morale in the kingdom was at an all-time low. And even though the CUP had been an integral part of the government that had bungled the Balkan War, Talat laid the blame squarely at the feet of the Sultan and his enablers in Parliament. But the blame game wasn't enough for Talat. Not anymore. So he organized a putsch to seize power once and for all. Trailed by a crowd of angry CUP supporters, Talat marched into Parliament and essentially just proclaimed that he was taking over. Sensing that there wasn't much they could do to stop him, the few who remained in opposition simply threw up their hands. And just like that, Talat and the CUP were now in control of over what remained of the once mighty Ottoman Empire. Finally in the position to lead the empire into the future, Talat wasted no time rounding up and imprisoning anyone who stood in his way. Meanwhile, he adopted the epithet of Pasha, a high-ranking Ottoman military title. Despite the fact that he was encountering little resistance to his takeover, Talat Pasha and the CUP still had a few large problems looming ahead of them. They still had no real agenda. Worse yet, their final claim on power coincided with an event that would upend the entire globe. The following year would witness the first shots of World War I. But as ever, Talat was determined to turn whatever chaos was heading his way to his advantage, even if it came at a very high price. Like nearly wiping out an entire ethnic group, all under the false pretense of Ottoman Muslim superiority and their destiny to make the empire great again. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll return with part two of Talat, including his role shepherding the empire through World War I and the Armenian Genocide, one of the worst atrocities in human history. Amongst the many sources we used, we found Talat Pasha by Hans Lucas Kaiser incredibly helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard 
and Richard Rossner. Hi, listeners. It's Ashley Flowers, and here's a quick reminder to check out my new True Crime Limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, I'm taking you across the globe to look at 15 of the most notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Some stories are sure to shock, some may leave you stumped, but all are quite the trip. Follow my new series, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.